Hi, my name's Ari Stein, and this is the 52 Insights Podcast. This week, I'm thrilled to be sitting down with the celebrated human rights activist and self-described number one enemy of Vladimir Putin, Bill Browder. An American native who spent the better part of 15 years trading blows with the most brutal kleptocracy on earth, the Russian government. His chilling story, documented in his best-selling novels, Freezing Order and Red Notice, read more like omens leading up to the gravest geopolitical conflict in Europe since World War II. In 2009, his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, was tortured and murdered in cold blood. This heinous act set off a chain of events that would lead Browder to work both ends of the candle to raise a stunning piece of legislation called the Magnitsky Act. Now enacted in 35 countries, it allows governments sweeping powers to freeze the assets and visas of foreign government officials deemed to be human rights offenders. Browder's story isn't just about one man's endless fight to dismantle a sociopathic regime, but more a tale built on protecting his personal virtues, justice, perseverance, and a higher calling. It's hard not to be inspired by his story. In this discussion, we delve into Browder's personal history, Russia's erratic journey to the present day, examining the direct relationship between Browder's sanction work and Putin's war in Ukraine, Trump's collusion with Russia, Putin's personal vendetta against Browder, what an eventual conclusion to the Ukraine war could look like, and finally, what Browder hopes to leave behind as a legacy. Without further ado, I give you my discussion with Bill Browder. Bill Browder, thank you so much for joining me on the 52 Insights podcast. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. I've been following your exploits for some time, and I think it's remarkable that in this day and age, some governments that continue to take a populist, oppressive stance towards its people, you are someone who's managed to leverage their courage and savvy to take on one of the most brutal kleptocracies in history, Russia. You describe yourself as Vladimir Putin's number one enemy. Your work, Freezing Order and Red Notice, both New York Times bestselling novels, at times when I was reading them, felt like genuine spy novels, their tales true to life. But the core of your work, as far as I understand, centers around building this incredible piece of legislation called the Magnitsky Act which has taken hold in over 34 countries, is named after your lawyer, Sergei, who was brutally murdered by the Russian government in 2009. You yourself emerged in the 90s as the largest foreign investor in Russia with your own firm, Hermitage Capital, in what was essentially the wild, wild west for people looking to capitalize in a uh, post-Soviet Union era. I thought to start with, and that short context, For our audience, you can give us a short synopsis of your background, where you were born, and how you came to know the inner workings of Russia and came to be the controversial defector that you have. Indeed. So just to back up a little bit, I I was born in Princeton, New Jersey. I grew up in Chicago. I come from a, a very unusual family. My grandfather was the General Secretary of the American Communist Party from 1932 to 1945. Uh, He ran for president 
twice against Roosevelt, once in 36 and once in 1940 on the communist ticket. He was actually the very first American presidential candidate to have an African-American running mate. He was imprisoned in 1941, uh, pardoned by Roosevelt in 42, uh, expelled from the Communist Party in 1945 for being too much of a capitalist, and then persecuted viciously in the 1950s during the McCarthy era for his communist background. So this is my family legacy. I was born in 1964. I'm 58 years old now. In the 1970s, when I was going through my teenage rebellion, I tried to figure out what a good way of rebelling from this family of communists would be. And I grew my hair long and it grew into an afro, but that didn't upset my family. I followed the Grateful Dead around the country for a few months, and that also strangely didn't upset my family. But then I came up with this perfect way of upsetting my family, which was to put on a suit and tie and become a capitalist. And that very much upset them. I became a capitalist. I went to Stanford Business School. I graduated business school in 1989, which was a very auspicious year because that was the year that the Berlin Wall came down. And as I was trying to find my career post-business school, uh, one day I had this epiphany, which is that if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America and the Berlin Wall has just come down, I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And that's what I set out to do. I moved from Palo Alto to London because it was close as I could get to Russia at the time. I had several jobs, but the job that eventually defined me was working at a in U.S. investment bank called Solomon Brothers. I worked on the Eastern European team of Solomon Brothers at the beginning of the Russian privatization program. And I was hired by a, a fishing fleet in Murmansk, which is located a couple hundred miles north of the Arctic Circle, to advise them on their privatization. And when I went to Murmansk, I was met by the head of the fishing fleet. He took me down to the docks and he showed me one of their ships and, and they had this, this enormous ship. It was like 450 feet long. There was on multiple different levels, nets, and then the separate, they separate the fish from the debris in the next level. And then they treat the fish and all the way down to the basement of the ship where they can the fish. And it was very impressive looking. And I asked the guy, how much does one of these things cost? And he said, $20 million new. I then asked him, how many, how many of these ships do you have in your fleet? A hundred. So $20 million times a hundred gets you to $2 billion worth of ships. I then asked, what's the age of your fleet? And he said, seven years. So I figured maybe half depreciated. So a billion dollars worth of ships. And I had been hired by this fishing fleet to advise the management on whether or not to exercise their legitimate right under the privatization program of Russia to buy 51%. And I asked him, at what price is the government selling 51% to you guys? And he said, $2.5 million. So a billion dollars worth of ships, you can buy 51% for $2.5 million. That pretty much changed my life. I realized that Russia was basically through their privatization program, which was designed to make everybody in the country a capitalist. They wanted to go from communism to capitalism. But in doing so, they were giving everything away for free. And, and so I ended up leaving Solomon Brothers. I set up an investment firm called Hermitage Capital. I had a fund called the Hermitage Fund. I started investing in Russia in 1996. And I eventually became the largest foreign investor in the country with more than $4.5 billion invested in their stock market. It was all a big success. But as I was growing, it started to become 
obvious that Russia was not a very honest country. I guess it may be, I knew that going in, but I didn't realize how unbelievably dishonest it was. And I started to see these unbelievable crimes taking place in the companies that I was investing in. Companies where they, they were just stripping assets, stripping cash, stripping, selling things to themselves, embezzlement, everything they were doing on an industrial scale. And, and the main people who were doing this were these people known as the Russian oligarchs. And so I started to expose the oligarchs. I started to fight with them by researching how they did the stealing and then sharing it with the international media. And this worked for a while. It particularly worked at actually, interestingly, at the beginning of Putin's presidency. When he had first become president, he was fighting with the same guys who I was fighting with. The oligarchs were stealing power from him at the same time they're stealing money from me. And so he was sort of on my side in the early years of my campaigning for better transparency and corporate governance. But and when he was on my side, he would step in and do various things to help me. And so for for a few years at the beginning of his presidency, I was under the misimpression that he was a good guy because he was doing all these things to help me. But in 2003, he arrested the richest man in Russia, a guy named Mikhail Hordakovsky, who was the owner of Yukos. He arrests him, he puts him on trial, he allows the television cameras to film inside the courtroom, the richest man in Russia sitting in a cage. And when the other oligarchs saw those images, they went to Putin and said, Vladimir, what do we have to do so we don't sit in a cage? And he said, real simple, 50%. And not for the government or for the presidential administration of Russia, but for him personally. That was the moment he became the richest man in the world. And that was the moment that all of, he turned all of his efforts on me. And about 18 months after uh, that, I was expelled from the country. I was declared a threat to national security. My offices were raided. They seized all of our documents. I hired a young lawyer to investigate why they did the office raid. His name was Sergei Magnitsky. He was 35 at the time. He worked for an American law firm. He discovered that the reason that they seized all of our documents was to use those documents to steal $230 million of taxes that we had paid to the Russian government. So we had paid a bunch of taxes to the Russian government. The police seized our documents and then use those documents in a fraud to steal nearly a quarter of a billion dollars. He discovers this crime, he exposes it, he testifies against the officials involved, and instead of the regime going after the people who stole a quarter, nearly a quarter of a billion dollars from their own government, they went after him. The same people he testified against arrested him, they put him in pretrial detention, uh, they tortured him for 358 days, and, and they murdered him on November 16th, 2009, at the age of 37, leaving a wife and two children. Since his murder, I've given up my life as a businessman to devote my time, all of my time, all of my resources and all of my energies to go after the people who killed him and make sure they face justice. And justice that we've gotten so far has been a piece of legislation named after Sergei Magnitsky called the Magnitsky Act, which freezes the assets and bans the visas of people who killed him and people who commit similar types of crimes. We started with this legislation in the United States. It passed in 2012. And since then, it passed in Canada, the UK, the 27 countries of the European Union, Australia, Norway, Iceland, Kosovo, Montenegro. If you add it all up, it's actually 35. I think you mentioned 34 in your introduction. 35 countries that have the Magnitsky Act. And it's now become the tool, the, the template, which is being used to sanction all the Russian oligarchs and officials for their involvement in Ukraine. It's also turned into a tool that's being used against many more dictators and kleptocrats all over the world. And 
it's something that really terrifies bad guys because when you get added to the Magnitsky list, your life is pretty much over as a finance person. You can no longer have bank accounts. Your money, the thought was yours, is no longer available to you. You can't travel. You can't get visas. Your family is having difficulties. It really does sort of, I wouldn't say it's not justice in the true form because you know having your assets frozen is not equivalent to torture and murder, but it's a lot better than total impunity, which is what most of these people enjoyed up until passage of the Magnitsky Act. Yeah. An inspiring um, and incredible story, really. It's it's amazing to hear you recount it. I just want to step back a little bit for a second uh, and examine something that you talked about. I want to try and get some context around the history uh, of Putin in those halcyon days of Russia. I mean, originally you said that uh, he was somewhat on your side and he allowed you to flourish uh, in his early days. But at some point, this terrifying sleeping giant awoke and, and it turned on you um, to some degree. So what do you put that down to? So you need to understand that Putin, when he came into power, wasn't this tyrannical, uh, powerful man that he is right now. When he came into power, he had been just chosen by Yeltsin to take over. Yeltsin was the previous president. He had heart disease. He was an alcoholic. He was way overweight. And he was losing his ability to hold on to power. And so Yeltsin needed to find a successor. And he very specifically needed to find a successor who would be in power long enough to look after Yeltsin, most specifically to pardon him and have the pardon hold. And so Yeltsin, first of all, when I should point out, was that Putin was the fourth choice of the successors. He chose three other people to succeed him, and they all failed. They, they, they couldn't muster the toughness or the popularity or whatever. And so Putin was really a fourth choice. Nobody knew much about him. He was this former KGB agent, sort of second-tier guy. The reason they chose him was basically because of his loyalty, because he had been so faithful in various different roles that he had been in. And so they chose him, and he shows up, and nobody knows who this guy is in Russia. He's a total unknown. He's not charismatic. He's short. He's... He's really an unimpressive guy. He's just like this nasty little man who couldn't captivate anybody in a conversation. The only thing he's good at is like sort of torturing people in or blackmailing them to do stuff. But he was not a very effective character by any stretch of the imagination. He was like in, a, in the Dresden regional office of the KGB when he was having his career in the KGB. And so the guy is not some kind of powerhouse that was just rising to the top like a cork. He's nothing like that. And so he comes in as the president of Russia, and he's really only the president of the presidential administration of Russia. The oligarchs had seized all the power for themselves. So he's looking at this situation, and both from a sort of governance standpoint, that, you know, how do you run a country if you have none of the levers of power? And he's also like pretty angry that, like, who are these oligarch guys that are getting it when I should be getting it? And so that's when he sort of wandered onto this fight with the oligarchs, and, and he won it. And he uses his KGB skills. And, and Russia is a very, very big country. If you look at a map of the world, it's just remarkable how much, how big it is. And it's an impossible country to govern. It's just, it's like 40 times bigger than Ukraine. I mean, it's, it's remarkable if you look at it on a map. And, and so the only way you can really govern it is not through micromanagement, is through massive symbolism. And so by, and he understood that. And so that's why he arrested the, the richest guy in Russia, because he wanted all the other rich guys who had been stealing power from him to understand that he was more powerful than them. It was kind of like the, 
you know, it's kind of a prison yard psychology. You've got to come in and like, as a new guy in the prison yard, you've got to come in and like pick the biggest guy in the prison yard and then pull a shank out of your sock and then stab him repeatedly in front of everybody. So his blood is spurting everywhere so that everybody else says, oh my God, this guy's the new head of the prison yard. That was his effective, that was figuratively what he did with Hordakovsky. Yes. And the West, I guess, is very much aware of these heroic defectors, the Kordakovskis and, and Navalny's of the world. Yet there is still this unshakable feeling that persists in the West that Russia has somehow always struggled, especially in the modern era, to define a coherent modern vision for its people. Would you agree with that? Is there some kind of thesis that the corruption mindset is endemic to their DNA? Well, I don't think corruption is endemic to anyone's DNA. I think it's it's sort of how it's always been, and they haven't had a model where it hasn't been that way. I mean, you can take any country and you put an honest uh, head of state in who's popular, and, and they can change things. But Russia has had hundreds of years of this type of stuff. I mean, they've had the nobility and the czars and the slaves and the serfs and then the communists, and, and it's never been not corrupt. There was there's expression from the communist time, if you weren't stealing from the state, you were effectively stealing from your family. And so everybody stole from the state. And then, and then there was another expression, you know, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. And it's really interesting because if you go to Russia right now and you were to like go to anybody and you have, let's say, a, a wealthy friend and they invite you to their apartment, you go to the most beautiful apartment. They've got like marble floors and beautiful furniture and art. And, and then you walk out the front door into the hallway of the apartment building and it smells of urine because nobody, everybody's so narrowly concerned with their own personal interests and absolutely have no ability to cooperate to do anything else. And any ability to cooperate has been beaten out of them through decades of KGB spying and snitching and arrests and so on. And so everybody is just so entirely narrowly focused on their own personal interests. And that's true right up to the top of the country and the president of the country. Nobody has any interest, any national interest. Nobody goes into government to serve Russia. They go into government to steal as much money as possible. And interestingly, while some people are upset about this, Alexei Navalny like makes movies about it and like a large minority of the population watches his movies and is outraged. A lot of Russians, if you were to ask them, they upset about corruption. They just want to be up there themselves doing the corruption. And they're only upset because they're not there, not because it's morally wrong. And so it's a whole sort of societal problem, which could be fixed very easily with good leadership. Maybe not easily, but it could be fixed with leadership. But Anybody who comes into the leadership just says, well, I'm just going to grab this stuff for myself. Yeah. You know, it's funny, whilst reading your book, I was also in parallel reading Franz Kafka's The Trial, and I found so many similarities. It's interesting. There was this unshakable feeling of paranoia and neurosis that set in, especially in your book, that you could feel as the protagonist, especially when you were really feeling the heat from Putin. and you started to document the close associates that were falling around you. Just for our audience, maybe tell us how do you describe that feeling? I mean, you were just one person, but you were up against this monolithic state with an entire population supposedly supporting him. How do you put that into some kind of narrative? Well, I mean, so the fight that I have and the monolith that I'm at war with, it wasn't a war that I chose. So they chose the war. They murdered Sergei Magnitsky, and I had no choice in my own mind and in my own heart 
other than to go after these people and to make them face justice. And as I pursued my justice campaign, other people got involved as well, sometimes invited, sometimes uninvited, to be on my side of the campaign. One of the people who got involved was a a very um, prominent opposition politician by the name of Boris Nemtsov. Boris Nemtsov was a a minister, I think he's deputy prime minister in the Yeltsin government, and he could have, like any of a number of other people, joined the Putin government and been a and like started uh, feeding at the trough of corruption, corruption. But he was so offended by everything that the corruption and all the things that Putin was involved in that he became an opposition politician, which relegated him first of all to near poverty. But then, and as he took on the causes that were most outrageous to him. One of them was the Magnitsky murder. And one of the causes that he latched onto, particularly within the Magnitsky case, was, was supporting the Magnitsky Act in different Congress and different parliaments around the world. And he traveled the world testifying about the need for a Magnitsky Act and how it was actually pro Russian legislation. And then in February of 2015, he was walking in front of the front of Red Square on the bridge next to Red Square with his girlfriend after a dinner. And he was shot in the back multiple times and murdered. And I remember that night very vividly. I was in Amsterdam just coming off of a TV show where I was promoting my first book, Red Notice, when I got the uh, call that he had been murdered. And it was just the most horrifying thing to think that his involvement in our campaign could have played a role in his death. And to make it worse, he had a protege, a guy named Vladimir Karamorza. Vladimir was about 15 years younger than Boris. He was an up-and-coming and up-rising up Russian civil society and opposition activist. And he took up the cause that Boris no longer could do because after his death. And again, attended various government and parliamentary testimonies with me and went around the world arguing against Putin and for Magnitsky. And then they poisoned him with, uh, we believe, Novichok in in the summer of 2015, a few months after Boris was killed. And he nearly died in hospital. He was in a coma. He had multiple organ failure, and he just barely survived. He um, left the country, and then he came back to Russia, and he was poisoned again in 2017. And he, again, came back to Russia very recently, and after the war started, and he was on TV calling Putin a murderer, and he was arrested. He's now in custody, facing 24 years in prison for, quote, treason. And I look at all this, and, and there's just such heartbreak and hardship connected with anybody who stands up to the regime. And we see it, of course, very personally and, and directly in, in our own struggles. It's not just us. I mean, this with the Ukrainians, it's with other Russians standing up to the regime. It's happening all over. But it's a terrible, brutal, horrific regime. And I've been screaming bloody murder about them for 10 years. It's only very recently that, that anyone has sort of finally woken up to the danger of these people. But Bill... You stood up to the regime, and yet you still haven't been harmed. Is there a reasoning that goes on in your mind about this, or a way you reflect on it? Well, it's amazing that I'm still here, that I'm alive, given what they have the capability and the history of doing. My analysis is that up until a year ago, one of them, I was probably the most well-known, certainly outside of Russia, critic and opposition person to Putin. And I was particularly well-known in the halls of every parliament, in the halls of every government around the world. And I think it was pretty clear to Putin that if they killed me abroad, which, is, which they've never done before, they've killed Russians abroad, but they've never killed a foreigner abroad. 
and a, and a foreigner like me who's so incredibly well-connected, I think that they took the view that, that that could lead to really devastating sanctions. And so they chose a different route. It wasn't like they didn't were going to leave me alone. And so they've been chasing me around with arrest warrants everywhere I go. And I've been, uh, they put, put me on the Interpol red notice and wanted list seven times. They've tried having me extradited from Britain. I was arrested in Madrid in 2018 and also in Geneva. They've been trying to get me back to Russia through what I call, quote, legal means, where they use these international agreements to, to get me taken back. And a lot of countries abide by those. And by the way, if they got me back, then they'd have the, a great time with me. They would torture me. They would do all sorts of things in, in the hopes of getting me to sign a confession, a quote confession, saying that I, I stole all the money and Sergei Magnitsky was my accomplice and there's nothing to the whole Magnitsky Act and the whole thing is a fake. That's what they would like me to say in, in torture. And then after they get that on television, then they could kill me slowly in a prison and shrug their uh, shoulders at the West and say, yeah, they, people die in prison. That's just what happens. Sorry. That's how the, I think they'd want to get me. So do you carry security with you to this day? Well, I, I have to be doing all sorts of, I have to take all sorts of measures in order to stay secure. But ha- traveling around with teams of bodyguards can often do just the opposite of, of what you're trying to do if you have a bunch of strangers who know all of your whereabouts. And so I won't go into detail, but I'm not like constantly with 16 people with me because that, that sometimes creates more danger than, it's, than it alleviates. Bill, do you have some measure of wealth left? I know you had quite a large interest or investment in Russia. I assume it has dwindled to some measure. Where do you spend most of your time now? Are you still running Hermitage Capital? No, no, I gave up my life as a businessman. I was lucky in that when I um, was expelled from Russia in uh, 2005, I liquidated everything we held in the country and I got all the money out. And so I was able to get out with my money intact and my client's money intact. Now, of course, the Russians have been chasing me all over the world, trying to go after my money and with all sorts of nasty court cases and lawsuits and so on, but they've failed at every juncture. But that's not because for lack of trying that they haven't done that. And so, yes, I, my money is dwindling because I spent it on this justice campaign, but, but I still have enough to survive and I have enough so I don't have to get a day job to feed my family. You know, that scene in the book, for me, was the real pinnacle in Freezing Order where Putin is talking almost directly at you in this bizarre, surreal press conference alongside Trump, talking directly about extraditing you. Can you just, for our audience, recount that scene for us and what it was like for you? So in in 2018, President Trump and Putin attended their very first summit. It was in Helsinki, Finland, in July 2018. It was taking place on a Monday. On the previous Friday, coincidentally, Robert Mueller, the special counsel investigating Russian interference in the U.S. political process, had indicted 12 Russian military intelligence officers for their involvement. And so on the following Monday, the obvious question to many people at the summit was, would Putin allow these people to be handed over to the U.S.? to face justice. So the two presidents have a meeting. It's an interesting summit. It's not like any other summit. The meeting is secret, private. Nobody else is allowed to attend. No advisors, no National Security Council, no Secretary of State, just the two presidents and one of Putin's aides. They have a four and a half hour meeting. 
they emerged from the meeting into a, uh, a large room with the international media. Putin struts up to the lectern where he's going to be addressing the crowd very confidently. Trump is interestingly very hunched over, looking a little chastised or something. The press conference begins, and about the third question in, a journalist from Reuters raises his hand, and he addresses his question to Putin, and he says, Mr. President, are you intending to hand over the 12 military intelligence officers? Putin smiles. He's obviously been preparing for this question. He says, yes, it's entirely possible that we would. But if we did so, we would expect uh, goodwill and reciprocity from our American partners. And specifically, we would expect them to hand over Bill Browder, me. So it wasn't particularly uh, nice to hear of the eight some odd billion people on the planet. I'm the one he's talking about at this press conference. It wasn't surprising. He's been chasing me around the world for a long time. And so I wasn't surprised that he would bring me up. But what was surprising was when the question then goes to Trump, what do you think of this offer? And Trump says, without hesitating, I think it's an incredible offer. And at that moment, I was terrified. I mean, the most powerful man in the free world is ready to cooperate and collude with the most vicious dictator who wants to kill me to hand me over. When this was happening, I was sitting in, in Aspen, Colorado, and I, I was just imagined a bunch of SUVs all sort of storming to my house, grabbing me, and then putting me on some rendition flight back to Moscow. And, and it took about four days before the Trump administration walked it back. And it was only as a vote was taking place in the Senate, which was going to go 98 to zero, not to hand me over, that they kind of withdrew their, their agreement with Putin. But it, it was horrifying. And, and I have to avoid most countries when I travel. I mean, of course, I never expected that from the United States. But you know, I would never travel to the United Arab Emirates, Dubai, or Saudi Arabia, or Thailand, because all these places are, don't have a rule of law. And, these, uh, and their, their leaders would be glad to hand me over for uh, doing Putin a favor. Yeah. And how do you look back on, on those four years that Trump was in power, or the, the Manchurian candidate? if we can call him that. I mean, for some, I guess it felt like we were hallucinating. It was hard to imagine or witness that uh, degradation, that attack on office that Trump had inspired. And it was also really bizarre to see this brotherhood that Trump and Putin had forged. I mean, you must have been looking on in horror. I guess in one part, Putin, I felt, failed miserably in interfering in the US democracy, although he did sow some seeds of dissent, I guess, by utilizing Trump. But you could probably also make the argument that Trump and Putin did create some collateral damage. Well, first of all, it's very interesting because I've read the Mueller report. And if you go around and like to an audience of Americans and let's say a thousand people in a room and ask people to, to be honest, raise your hand if you've actually read the Mueller report, just like a handful of fans will go up in the room. Most, almost nobody has read the Mueller report. If you read the Mueller report, it's very clear <laughs> that Many people in the Trump campaign were seeking out very hard to try to find a way of colluding with the Russians. And many people from Putin's administration were seeking out and trying to find ways of colluding with people from the Trump campaign. That was clear. And the only reason why it didn't sort of click is, first of all, possibly because the evidence wasn't physically there. And secondly, perhaps these people were too stupid in the Trump camp to find the right people to collude with. That's the, the bottom line of that report. 
And these people have done a tremendous amount of damage. I mean, I can remember when I first started my fight with Putin, the Republican establishment in the United States was the most hawkish national security, anti-Russia, pro-America Republican party you could ever have. I was just on a, um, a TV show the other night with some woman commentator named Tommy Laren from Fox News who was arguing that Ukraine shouldn't get any support from America. I mean, it's just inconceivable that it's not the entire Republican Party. There's some very good Republicans that are absolutely in the right place on this. But there's now a wing of the Republican Party, the Putin wing. They're just absolutely repeating the talking points of Vladimir Putin right now as we speak. Yeah. I mean, it seems like somehow Trump infected the party with his own poison and caused this pocket of the Republican Party to bathe in his bathwater. I just don't know how it happened. It's hard to calculate. You know, over time, this mass hallucination, this groupthink developed, and it's there and it's still thriving. I just want to fast forward, though, to the current time we're in, because it must be bizarre for you to witness this Russia-Ukraine aggression unfold. There's so many parts to it. But, but reading your book, Freezing Order, I felt like your story was really a precursor to this whole uh, scenario. In some ways, the whole world has been pulled into this war. The work that you've been doing around the Magnitsky Act, to some people, could be construed as a canary in the coal mine to some degree. What are your general thoughts when you saw Putin amassing these troops across the Ukrainian-Russian border? You must have had some thoughts in the back of your mind about how this all came to be. Well, it's very obvious. I can draw a straight line from the murder of Sergei Magnitsky to the war in Ukraine, and it's very straightforward. Sergei Magnitsky witnessed and uncovered the theft of $230 million from the Russian government by Russian government officials. We investigated that, which is written about in great detail in my second book, Freezing Order, and we discovered several dramatic things. Um, the first is that Putin was one of the beneficiaries of this crime. We discovered that via the Panama Papers. The Panama Papers was a data leak out of Panama, out of a law firm called Mossack Fonseca, in which it showed all sorts of individuals around the world who were hiding money. And one of the individuals was a, an obscure Russian cellist named Sergei Roldugin, who had accumulated $2 billion that nobody could make any sense of until they discovered that Sergei Roldugin was Putin's, uh, the godfather of Putin's daughter, Putin's best friend from childhood, and a nominee for Vladimir Putin. So this cellist, the only reason he's got $2 billion is he's holding it for Putin. That was a big revelation. And then once we discovered the cellist, we then looked to see whether the cellist was involved in anything connected to the Magnitsky case. And we've been conducting a major money laundering investigation for a decade, and we discovered that the cellist got some of the money which meant that Putin got some of the money. And so that was a big revelation. But the even bigger revelation was that the money, the $230 million that Sergei had discovered, 200 of it had flowed through one bank, a Danish bank with a, an Estonian branch called Dansky Bank. And we discovered it, 200 million from the crime had flowed through this bank to be laundered. And when we discovered that, we were contacted by some Danish journalists that had just gotten hold of a big database of a data leak, I should say, of wire transfer information of Dansky Bank. And they said, we want to just compare your stuff with our database to see if we can find any more illicit uh, transfers. And we gave them our, our analysis. And they came back and said, actually, the amount is not 200 million. It's 8.3 billion. 
Now, at this point, the Danish, who are supposed to be the second most honest country in the world after New Zealand on the Transparency International Index, the bank couldn't just shrug it off and say, ah, that fake news or whatever. They were required by their own society and their own morals to do a, a proper further investigation. And so the, the CEO of the Danish bank hired an external accounting and uh, law firm and data analysis firm, and they came back after doing the, their analysis, and they announced, actually, the number is not $8.3 billion, it's $232 billion of illicit Russian funds have been laundered through this bank. So now, this is just one bank in Denmark, a Danish bank. If you could lift the hood on Raiffeisen Bank in Vienna, on uh, Credit Suisse and UBS in Zurich, on Deutsche Bank in Frankfurt, and, and a few other banks, I think the, the number of stolen money from Russia, from the Russian government, from the Russian people, would be a trillion dollars. That's my estimate. A trillion dollars of money was stolen by Putin and the thousand people around him. And this is where we get to the war, because you can't steal a trillion dollars over a 22-year period as the head of state and expect that people aren't going to get mad at you. And Putin has a terrible dilemma, because if at any point he's no longer head of state, he no longer gets to keep all the money he's stolen, he goes to jail and he probably gets killed. And so for him, it's an existential threat to lose power. And he's, he's in a position where it's very likely he's going to lose power because of all the money he's stolen. And so what does a dictator do who's stolen a ton of money, who's scared to death, literally scared to death of losing power and scared of his own people turning against him? He does what any dictator would do. He starts a war. And that's what this war in Ukraine is all about. It's about the stolen money from the Russian people. And because of that, it's a very bad omen for what's going to happen next, because the Russian people will get rid of him. He can't compromise. He cannot negotiate. He can't back down. He has to win this war, and he's not winning the war. And so for him, all he can do is just throw more and more stuff at it. There's no way that he can withdraw. There's no way he can recede. There's no way he can capitulate. And so there's only two outcomes here. Either the Ukrainians beat the Russians, which they can do, because if they get enough Western equipment, or the Russians keep on throwing stuff at this, and Putin has more time, he has had all the time in the world compared to us. He doesn't have a democracy, and he can just grind this out until we lose interest. But sadly, that's the prospect of what's going to happen next. So let me get this straight. You're essentially saying that the reason why Putin started this war against Ukraine was to divert attention away from any potential resentment from his own people? and the enormous theft of resources from the state and the paranoia of losing power? Yeah, but there's a famous American movie called Wag the Dog. This is a Wag the Dog war. Yeah, I love that movie. But you know Putin's temperament so well. You know his mindset. How do you feel like this war unfolds? Many of us playing a guessing game, in the most realistic senses, what is the next phase? Do you feel like Ukraine has what it takes to win? or that Russia will grind it out? What's your take on it? I don't think Ukraine has what it takes to win right now. They're still outmanned and outgunned by an order of magnitude. I think that Ukraine has a number of advantages. One is that they're defending, that the Ukrainian soldiers are defending their home, their people, their wives, their children, their freedom. That's a very powerful motivation. I think the Ukrainians are fighting with everything they've got, and they are getting proper Western equipment, which helps them not lose the war. But I think that they're not getting enough. I mean, why are we still not giving the Ukrainians jets? Doesn't make any sense to me. Just today, 
the um, Americans have said they're going to transfer long-range missiles. Why did it take a year? Why are they just getting tanks last week? Everything is a little bit too little. And the really scary thing, and what Putin is banking on, is that we just run out of steam, you know, economically, bandwidth-wise, politically, and that people move on to other things. And there's, I mean, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, there are these people call themselves Republicans that are all saying, why are we giving money to Ukraine? And, and thankfully, that's, that's not the majority. The majority of Republicans and, and all the Democrats are saying this is clearly in, in America's national security interest to do so. But, you know, I worry. It's hard not to with those kinds of people mumbling stuff publicly. Bill, do you think Putin is mentally stable as a person? Would you assess him as someone that has a full set of marbles? Yeah, but his marbles are different than our marbles. <laughs> so he is a psychopath. That doesn't mean he's having hallucinations and can't see the same things we see. It's just he doesn't care about killing people. He doesn't care about killing his own soldiers in the hundreds of thousands. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about impoverishing his people. He doesn't care what they're going to write on his tombstone when he's finally gone. All he cares about is just as best as he can to personally stay alive and to be fine in his own skin. Nobody else matters. And for a person who doesn't care about whose heart doesn't start beating faster when if a baby was being tortured in front of them, which is Putin would just like, he has no empathy or compassion whatsoever. What he can do lacking empathy is a lot of really terrible things. Bill, do you ever have days where you just feel exhausted by this fight that you started off as a very successful businessman? Well, you didn't start off, you developed into a successful businessman. And then you gave that up to become a full-time activist. Do you ever have days where you regret it or you feel exhausted by this decades-long fight? Strangely, no. I don't feel exhausted at all. I feel very motivated all the time. And I've never gotten demoralized at any point in this process. I sometimes feel scared. I sometimes feel things are spinning out of control in different ways, but I never feel demoralized or exhausted. I'm always strained. And thank God I don't, because if I had ever gotten exhausted or ground down, they could have destroyed me and destroyed everyone around me. Have you ever met Alexander Navalny? Alexei Navalny, I have met him, absolutely. He, he was sort of, when I was a big anti-corruption activist, he was a junior anti-corruption activist, and we met in Moscow. Of course, he's now gone on to become the biggest anti-corruption activist that Russia's ever seen, and, and potentially the next president of Russia if the Putin regime were to fracture. Don't you think his fight would have been more powerful, say, in this, compared to the situation that he's in, pursuing some type of agenda from afar, not within Russia? I think that he's taken a very calculated bet, which is that by going back to Russia, he's now elevated himself into a you know, Nelson Mandela type of character. And, and he has the possibility, he couldn't have been the president if he, never, if he didn't go back to Russia. Now he could. And that's one of the reasons he's still alive, because Putin understands that if he were to kill Navalny, that may be the, the straw that breaks the camel's back and the whole thing comes undone for Putin. Bill, do you ever reflect on the people that you've come across across your career, that the ones that you've been disappointed by? I know that you've mentioned specific actors like John Mosco and Mark Simpson. But are there people that you reflect on, a group of people that you feel, aside from that, that you're particularly disappointed by, that they didn't step up to the plate? Well, there's a whole population of what I call Western enablers who are trying to profit out of Russia while I was trying to contain them. 
And in a certain way, I, I hold those people in more contempt than I do the Russians because they know better. They don't have the, they weren't traumatized at birth. They were brought up in gentle homes with nice parents and good friends. And they made a conscious decision to go over to the dark side. But I've also encountered a lot of unbelievable heroes, people like Vladimir Karamorza, Alexei Navalny, John McCain, who, Senator Benjamin Cardin, people who came to join the cause, you know, Boris Nemtsov, who have, in some cases, risked everything for truth and justice. And so human nature and humanity is all very complicated. Some great people and some horrible people, and I've seen them both. And Bill, just finally, what would you define or you want your legacy to be like? I mean, many of us don't know how this Russia-Ukraine aggression will unfold. But in spite of that and Putin's looming fate and having done the work that you've done tirelessly, how would you like to have your work remembered? Well, most importantly, I would like my legacy to have gotten justice for Sergei Magnitsky and I guess now a bunch of other victims, but particularly for Sergei, who died in my service because he worked for me. And I hope that one day that when the Putin regime falls, the people who killed him will go to jail for torture and murder and they'll build monuments to Sergei for what he sacrificed for his country. And perhaps in, in, the, well, in the meantime, anyways, they're building legal monuments to him with the name Magnitsky Act on them. Bill, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you. I mean that. And inspiring, incredibly inspiring. The paperback of your book, Freezing Order, as I understand it, has just been released or will be released by the time this podcast is out. So anyone that's listening, I urge you to get a copy. It's one hell of a tale. In fact, I think it's one of the finest first-hand accounts of activism I've ever read, especially in the face of a deadly kleptocracy. Bill Browder, thank you so much for joining me on the 52 Insights podcast. Thank you. Have a great day. Hey there, this is Ari Stein, and you've been listening to the 52 Insights podcast. Thank you to Portico Quartet for their track Endless and to bearvalue.com for their production work. Make sure you just sign up to my newsletter on my website, and subscribe to my podcast on Apple and Spotify to get notifications of when my next podcast will drop.